Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, In You I Take Shelter, Zara Jakob. Once upon a time in Ethiopia, there lived an Italian missionary named Giusto Dorbino. He communicated regularly with a French scholar named Antoine Dabadi, who had made it his mission to collect every work of Ethiopian literature that he could get his hands on. It was in September of 1852 that Dorbino first wrote to Dabadi to tell him of a strange book he had encountered, as he put it, a kind of novel or biographical story written by a deist philosopher. About six months later, Dorbino copied it out in his own hand to send to Davadi. At the very end of the book, there was an addendum by a disciple of the philosopher, explaining the circumstances of the philosopher's death, and noting that he too, that is, the disciple, had been inspired to write a book. Dorbino promised Davadi to search for this second work as well. Finally, in 1854, he sent Davadi a full version of the conjoined books of the two 17th century Ethiopian philosophers, entitled The Hatata, or Inquiry, of Zara Jacob and Walda Hewat, copied out by the hand of an Ethiopian scribe. It is therefore thanks to these efforts by Durbino that we have access to two of the most fascinating works in the history of Africana philosophy. Or might it be the case that we have Durbino to thank not merely for finding these texts, but for creating them as well? This, as it turns out, is a matter of ongoing controversy. While scholars of African philosophy working after Claude Sumner's groundbreaking study of the Hatata have tended to take it for granted that these are authentic Ethiopian texts, doubts about this have been expressed since early in the 20th century. The case against them being authentic has recently been made once again at great length by the French Ethiopianist Anaïs Vion. She has revived the suspicion that it was Dorbino himself who wrote these texts in Gaïs. For now, we are going to set aside this controversy and assume the texts are genuine, but we will return to the question of authenticity later, after giving you a sense of what is at stake by giving you an overview of their complementary explorations of God, reason, knowledge, and human well-being. To appreciate these texts properly, we need to know something about the intellectual culture from which they, at least supposedly, came. The 15th and 16th centuries in Ethiopia were a time of intense debate over religious issues. Here, we should bear in mind the isolation of Ethiopia as a Christian kingdom during the Middle Ages, especially as Islam was adopted by a number of surrounding peoples. Contact with the Coptic Church in Egypt, which supplied Ethiopia with the head of its church, was at times irregular. According to one scholar, contact became more regular by the time of the Solomonic dynasty, and there were attempts by Egyptian metropolitans to update Ethiopian Christianity, but one consequence of such attempts was the opening up of questions of doctrine long settled elsewhere. Old heresies and questions about the nature, or natures, of Christ and of the Trinity became live issues. They are dealt with, for example, in the work of Georgis of Segla, who is among the most prolific authors of religious texts in Gaiz. Another scholar describes the Book of Mystery, which Georgis wrote sometime around 1424, as a voluminous theological opus that can in some ways be considered the Ethiopian Summa Theologica. Also worth noting is a certain emperor who ruled Ethiopia during the middle third of the 15th century and who has been described as the principal author of religious nationalism in pre-modern Ethiopia. 
This emperor's name, as it turns out, was Zara Jacob, the same as the philosopher to whom most of this episode is dedicated. Obviously, this is potentially confusing, so we have to be careful to distinguish between Zara Jacob, the 15th century emperor associated with religious nationalism, and the rationalist and arguably non-Christian thinker Zara Jacob of the 17th century, whose very existence as a real person has been challenged. There's no doubt that the emperor, Zara Jacob, was real, and he is commonly credited with writing multiple books. One of the works ascribed to him, but which likely involves a collaborative effort by members of his court, is the Book of Light, which reflects the positions that the emperor took on what is or is not heretical. There was, first of all, the problem what to do about the Eostathians, or followers of Eostatios, who were notable for their belief in keeping two Sabbaths, the Sabbath of the Jews on Saturday and the Sabbath of the Christians on Sunday. So, whether you were a fan of an ecumenical approach to religion, or just like to keep your weekends free, this is a group you should be able to get behind. Apparently, the emperor Zara Jacob felt this way too. Opting in this case for incorporation rather than antagonism, he held a council in 1450 and announced at the end of it that the Ewostathian view was now to be the view of the state. Two Sabbaths for all. By contrast, the emperor was not at all interested in accepting or accommodating the Stephanites, followers of Estefanos, who were known to reject the veneration of Mary and of the cross, and also prostration before the emperor, arguing that this was respect due to only God himself. It is easy to assume that the last part was the worst part in the emperor, Zara Yaakov's eyes, but it may very well have been less deplorable to him than their stance on Mary. Some of the most interesting parts in his Book of Light involve the central importance he gives to Mary, whom he described as a virgin, not only in body, but in mind and conscience as well. Virginity of body, the emperor argues, is easy to find among men and women, and cannot be what makes Mary special. Only the lack of any intention to sin could have made it possible for God to inhabit her. While traditional Catholics will be familiar with the idea of Mary as lacking sin, they may be surprised by the emperor's subsequent argument that her purity of mind and inhabitance by God meant that Mary was privy to divine knowledge, knowledge to which no other human mind or even angelic mind has ever had access. As a result, she is identified as the ultimate prophet, more powerful than all others. It has been said of the emperor Zara Jacob that he elevates Mary to a status akin to that of a goddess. If the 15th century was marked by questions of doctrine among Christians, the most important conflict of the 16th century was with Islam. It was in this century that Ahmad Ghan, the leader of the Adal Sultanate, based in what is now Somaliland, declared a jihad against Ethiopia, to which had been paying tribute. The result was the most successful conquest of Ethiopia prior to the Italian occupation of the 20th century. It is in the midst of all this that we find the work of Enbakom, said to be originally from Yemen or perhaps Iraq. He chose to settle in Ethiopia and converted from Islam, or possibly Judaism, to Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity, eventually becoming the top-ranking monk at the country's most important monastery, Debra Libanos. Enbakom is known for having translated a number of texts from Arabic into Ga'iz. One of the works he translated was the story of Balaam and Josaphat, a Christianized version of the story of the Buddha, which makes for an interesting connection between this series of episodes on Africana philosophy and the episodes on Indian philosophy that preceded them. His book 
An Casa Amin, or Door of the Faith, on the other hand, is not a translation, but an original, apologetic work defending Christianity in contrast to Islam, and arguing, among other things, that the Quran itself can be shown to reveal Christianity as the true religion. These religious controversies help to set the scene for the life and thought of our second Zara Yaqob, and every time we use this name from now on, we will mean the 17th century rationalist, not the 15th century emperor. Alongside the disputes among Ethiopian Christians and between Christians and Muslims, there is yet another source of religious controversy that is still more important for understanding his thought. This is the conflict arising from the influence of Portuguese and Spanish Jesuits on the Ethiopian royal court, an influence that reached its apex in the 17th century during Zara Jacob's lifetime. This part of the story goes back to 1543, when Portugal provided aid to combat the invasion by Ahmad Ghan, who was himself supported by the Ottoman Empire. The involvement of international powers in this African war is typical of the increasingly shrinking world of the early modern period. The ability of Jesuit missionaries to gain an audience with the Ethiopian monarch and operate within Ethiopia ebbed and flowed during the 16th century, but they gained new and unprecedented success in the early decades of the 17th century. The emperor, Zad Dengel, was converted to Catholicism, and although his rule was short-lived and he was overthrown, a subsequent emperor named Susenyos also converted in 1621. He established Catholicism as the official religion of the realm, replacing the Orthodox Church. This massive change met with much resistance and uprisings, and finally, about a decade later in 1632, Susenyos declared religious liberty and abdicated power in favor of his son, Fasiladas. Upon taking power, Fasiladas promptly re-established Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity as the state religion, and within a couple of years, he expelled the Jesuits from Ethiopia. These momentous events directly shaped the life of Zera Jacob, who was born in 1599 in Aksum, which, as you might remember from the last episode, was the capital of the empire that first established Christianity as state religion in Ethiopia back in the 4th century. Zara Yaakov became a teacher in that city during the rule of the Emperor Susenyos, and was well-versed in both the Ethiopian Orthodox and Catholic interpretations of the Bible. He tells us that he adopted an ecumenical spirit with regard to the different versions of Christianity that were contending for power in his culture. He wrote, While I was teaching and interpreting the books, I used to say, The Frange say this and this, or the Copts say that and that, and I did not say, this is good, that is bad, but I said, all these things are good if we ourselves are good. Hence, I was disliked by all. The Copts took me for a Frange, the Frange for a Copt. Let's clarify the two terms he's using here. Frange means foreigner, and is derived from Arabic, in which the term originated as the name of the Franks, who attacked the lands of Islam during the Crusades. Thus, when used to evoke the Iberian Jesuits, you might wonder whether there is some sort of racial distinction being made here. But that is clearly not the case, at least not in Zara Yaakov's usage. He contrasts the term with Copt, a term that refers neither to race nor even to nationality. Instead, it identifies adherence to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church by making reference to their administrative connection to the Egyptian Church. And of course, when Zara Yaakov says that he was mistaken at times for a frange, he's clearly not talking about being mistaken for a European foreigner. Rather, he is treating the term as referring to a religious position that anyone can adopt. 
In general, racial distinctions are notably absent from Zara Jacob's text. This is in sharp contrast to the way that modern Africana thought will eventually be forced to reckon with ideas of race as a central concern, as we'll see in the second and third parts of this series of podcasts. Zara Jacob goes on to explain in the second chapter of his book the major turning point in his life. An enemy of his falsely denounced him to the emperor as one of those who promoted rebellion in defense of Ethiopian orthodoxy after the establishment of Catholicism. To avoid being killed for this, Zara Jacob fled his hometown, taking with him some gold and, even more valuable, his most prized possession, a copy of the Psalms of David. He eventually happened upon a cave that he made into a home for the rest of the time before the abdication and death of Susenyos, which was about two years. It is here that the story shifts from one of political upheaval to one of philosophical contemplation. Despite the autobiographical frame he offers us, Zara Jakob devotes most of his book not to the narrative of his own life, but rather to a report of the philosophical thoughts he had while in this forced seclusion. The book's third chapter tells of how he sat in the cave, praying to God, and ended up asking himself whether there truly is a God who hears his prayer. Even in the midst of this dark despair, his love for the Psalms shines through, as he expresses his anxiety over the existence of God by quoting Psalm 73, In vain have I kept my own heart pure. More positively, he reassures himself with the quotation, In you I take shelter, referring here to God and not the cave. He is then moved to reflect on a rhetorical question, in this case from Psalm 74, Is the inventor of the ear unable to hear? This leads him to ponder how he himself came to have an ear to hear, and indeed how he exists at all. He develops a version of what philosophers call the cosmological argument, reasoning that if he traces his existence back to his parents and then asks who created his parents, he must eventually conclude that there is an uncreated thing that created other things out of nothing. Otherwise, there would be no end to the chain of causal explanations. He also reasons that this uncreated creator must be intelligent, for only a being with intelligence could bestow intelligence upon beings he created. In the fourth chapter, now satisfied that there is an intelligent creator who hears him, he wonders, is all that we find in the holy scriptures true? This question leads him to confront the problem of religious disagreement. Whoever you turn to for advice, you'll simply hear that that person's religious convictions are the right ones, and others false. The Copts and the Frange, the Muslims and the Jews, all make exclusive claims for their own faiths, and yet, as Zara Jacob puts it, truth is one. The problem, he concludes, is that people find it easier to rely on what they have heard from others, because critical examination of what others say is difficult, and we humans are by nature sluggish and weak. It is surprising, then, that he begins the fifth chapter by saying, To the person who seeks it, truth is immediately revealed. If critical examination is so difficult, how can he claim that the revelation of truth is immediate when sought? One way to understand his point is that the difficult part is choosing to let go of preconceived notions inherited from others. Once this has been achieved and one uses the intelligence bestowed by the Creator, rather than relying on others, understanding the Creator's intentions is not so difficult. It's a bit like changing the channel when the remote control isn't lying on the sofa next to you. Once you have it in hand, changing the channel is easy, it's just that you're lying down here so comfortably and it's all the way over there. 
Zera Jacob demonstrates the independent search for truth he recommends by considering various imperatives upheld by the Abrahamic religions, and assessing whether they are divine or rather human in origin. All these religions are criticized for encouraging fasting, because eating is necessary for survival, so not eating for significant periods of time is irrational. In fact, abstinence in general, such a central part of Christian tradition in Ethiopia and elsewhere, strikes him as irrational. He thus repudiates the glorification of monastic life in comparison with marriage. On the other hand, he finds it equally irrational that Islam countenances polygamy, because when we look around us, we see that there are roughly equal numbers of men and women. We even find out his views on the question addressed by the emperor with his same name and the Ewostathians, that is, the question of which Sabbath to keep, the Sabbath of the Jews, the Sabbath of the Christians, or both. His answer is none. He identifies the rule to keep the Sabbath holy as the one rule of the Ten Commandments that we may know to be of human origin, for our reason teaches us nothing about observing a day of rest, while it does teach us to agree with the prohibitions of killing, stealing, lying, and adultery. Aside from criticizing polygamy, another criticism he makes of Islam concerns slavery. He writes, Likewise, the Muslims said that it is right to go and buy a man as if he were an animal. But with our intelligence, we understand that this Muslim law cannot come from the creator of man, who made us equal like brothers, so that we call our creator our father. But Muhammad made the weaker man the possession of the stronger, and equated a rational creature with irrational animals. Can this depravity be attributed to God? Of course, it is unfair for him to single out Islam in particular for the acceptance of slavery. Nonetheless, this is a remarkable argument for human equality, one that resonates with the arguments for natural rights that we associate with the European Enlightenment. Zara Jacob can also be said to show a special concern for gender equality. We've already mentioned his arguments in favor of monogamous marriage as the happy compromise between the indefensible extremes of chastity and polygamy. He also criticizes Judaism for treating menstruation as something that makes women unclean, since it is, in fact, a divinely ordained bodily process involved in reproduction. Perhaps the most memorable expression of his concern for gender equality, though, is found in chapter 12, where Zara Jacob describes how he got married. Here we are in a part of the book that has returned to autobiography. After leaving his cave, Zara Jacob tells us, he came to live in the home of a rich man named Habtu in the town of Enfraz. He first served Habtu by copying out the Psalms, but then also became a teacher to Habtu's sons. Now, Habtu had a maid named Hirut, and as soon as Zara Jacob expressed interest in marrying her, Habtu cheerfully said, Hereafter, she is not my maidservant, but yours. To which Zara Jacob replied, I do not wish her to be my maidservant, but my wife. Husband and wife are equal in marriage. We should not call them master and maidservant, for they are one flesh and one life. Zara Jacob thus asked Hirut whether she would like to be his wife, and gave her the opportunity to confirm that this was indeed to her liking before they lived happily ever after. The story is far too straightforward to be ripe for treatment as a romantic comedy, but this work as a whole represents a dramatic turning point in Africana thought. Zara Jacob combines religious piety with relentless rationalism, encouraging us to found our faith upon personal reflection and not unthinking acceptance of what others tell us. He evaluates the practices of religions, including his own, against the same standard. In short, 
he seems a paradigmatic representative of 17th century rationalism, with the significant caveat that he lives and writes in Ethiopia rather than England or France. As we've said, some think that this is quite literally too good to be true, and that it is instead a European thinker, namely Dorbino, who must be credited with all these ideas, but also with the rather different ideas of Zerayakov's putative disciple, Walda Hewat, who you'll be glad to know is the only Walda Hewat who will need to feature in these podcasts. It will be his ideas that feature next time, in an episode that will be available on September 2nd, after the podcast goes on its annual summer break. We'll be completing this look at the remarkable documents made available by Dorbino and asking whether they really represent a genuine part of the history of Africana philosophy. Thank <laughs> you.